It's Wednesday, February 27th, 2019. I'm Herbie Newell, and this is the Defender Podcast, a daily encouragement to mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This daily podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm coming to you from Bogota, Colombia. Well, we are actually absolutely thrilled to have Jason Cook on the Defender Podcast, and uh, Jason is just a clarion voice today. Uh, for the gospel, a uh, fantastic preacher that the Lord has just blessed. And Jason was born and raised in Birmingham before moving to Sewanee, Georgia, where he finished high school. And then for SEC fans, he uh, signed a football scholarship to the University of Mississippi in Oxford and Ole Miss, where he was a four-year starter and a four-year letter winner at fullback. Uh, though he was raised in a home that taught him to love and fear God, it wasn't until his sophomore year at Ole Miss when he began to walk faithfully with Jesus. And then in 2009, Jason enjoyed a brief stint with the Baltimore Ravens through the preseason uh, before embracing the call that the Lord had placed on his life to ministry. Since college, Jason has been actively involved in traveling the country, preaching God's word, demographically diverse environments, and has been involved in helping plant churches, including uh, Iron City Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Currently, uh, Jason is in Memphis, where he's the associate pastor of preaching at Fellowship Memphis. He holds an MDiv from Beeson Divinity School, and uh, we're just so grateful to have Jason here, who's also editor with the Gospel Coalition, where he contributes to the Faith and Work Initiative. So, Jason, outside of that biography, just tell us a little bit about yourself and even your initial call to ministry. Yeah, so my family currently resides in Memphis, Tennessee, where we serve at Fellowship Memphis, and I'm married to Courtney, and we have... Uh, two beautiful children. Uh, our daughter, Charlie, is four. She'll be five next week. And we have a three-year-old little boy, and we've got another little one on the way. So we're excited about that. Um, and I grew up in a Word of Faith Pentecostal movement in Birmingham at a church in Roebuck. And that's really where um, I heard the gospel, clung to it, uh, but really was never discipled in how to faithfully walk into that. Well, in high school, my family moved from Birmingham to Atlanta, and it was there around age 13 that God called me to be a pastor. I didn't want to be a pastor. I had no interest in being a pastor. I wanted to play football. Um, but really, God began to confirm and affirm that call in me over the years until in 2009, I walked away from the NFL to to go into full-time ministry. And so uh, just some of my passions are the church at large, seeing God's work in and through his people in the um, the heavenly embassy that is the local church. And man, sports, I love my family uh, and I love to read. So that's just a little bit more about my calling, who I am and a couple of things I like to do. Well, and I can say for sure that uh, the Lord has used that full Pentecostal background uh, in so many ways, even with a rich theology that you've gotten, uh, just to, to lead people into passion for Jesus. But also, obviously, your family embraces this, but then the ministry that you have really embraces this multi-ethnic ministry. And I, I think even today, in a lot of ways, we see a divide that is still very raw uh, in our country, uh, and not just in the United States, but even as we travel around the world, we just see such hatred and such bitterness towards people because of differences that we have. So when we say multi-ethnic ministry, what do you think this means? And how can the church be a voice 
of unifying differences in our country and in our world? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a really uh, good question. I think multi-ethnic ministry is the lowest step toward the heavenly reality of cross-cultural life with God. Uh, multi-ethnic ministry at its core uh, kind of assumes or really says that there are multiple ethnicities within a certain space or ministry uh, to multiple ethnicities within a certain space. I think heaven uh, kind of takes this, the idea of multi-ethnicity and, and pushes it forward a step because it's not just races and ethnicities represented, but they're ethnicities and cultures that are intermingled to create this full worship of God. So when we say multi-ethnic ministry, particularly in the, in the church context, what we're saying is that a church is made up of no more than 80% of one predominant group. So, for example, most Southern churches are either predominantly homogenous, black, or white. The multi-ethnic church says that at least 20% of a church is going to be a different ethnicity than the dominant uh, ethnic group. So, when we said, when I use the term multi-ethnicity uh, as, a, as a goal to pursue, that's kind of what I mean when I say that. As we even look at the South and from what you're saying, we know that the South, unfortunately, has a history of segregation, a history of separating. And right now today in the South, in Memphis and Birmingham, if, if I go to the mall, if I go out to eat, my world is going to look very multi-ethnic. But unfortunately, the churches and the places that we go to worship are not. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how do you see the church and what are the changes that we need to make in the local church to look more like the mall, to look more like the uh, the schools to look more like the places that we live and breathe every day. How do we start to invite that multiculturalism, that multi-ethnic into our churches? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, the short of it is there is no simple answer. Uh, it's a lot of different things. But I think part of the modern day fallacy is that somehow a cursory understanding of um, of the history of the church will suffice for uh, bringing about those remedies or that somehow a perfunctory understanding of, the, of how we interact and worship will bring about remedies. In order to really understand this issue, you've got to go back a thousand years and you've got to understand the progression and the ideology of um, how ethnic supremacy came about. And if you really want to go all the way back to the Bible, then you can do that because the, the text itself, the Bible doesn't know race. All right. So race is a social construct. The Bible speaks in ethnicity and culture. There is all throughout the Bible, ethnic superiority and cultural superiority, but the gospel flattens those things. It's what Paul talks about in, at the end of Galatians 3, when he says there's no Jew or Gentile, Greek, slave, Scythian, barbarian. He's not saying that the gospel erases ethnic or cultural distinctions. He's saying that we all have access to that. And to, to illustrate the point even more, there's a call for unity that he gives in Ephesians 2 when he says that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between Jew and Gentile, 
that we're co-heirs to God. And this co-heirship is actually part of the manifold wisdom of God that he references in chapter three. And so when you understand that, then you begin to see the perversion of those things. Just a couple of different examples. Uh, in the 14th and 15th century, the Catholic church, the Pope issued papal bulls, which were kind of uh, papal edicts that basically gave explorers the wide berth and latitude to subdue and conquer lands that were inhabited by non-Christians or lands that were inhabited by people with black or brown skin. And what you find is the very underpinning of all of imperialism was the idea of ethnic and cultural su supremacy. So when you get the colonists who come to America and set up and found churches in the late 17th and 18th century, they're bringing with them that same presupposition. Now you throw in slavery, which is a natural continuation of that thought. And it makes sense why in America's 400 year history, um, for only 50 years has there been uh, relative freedom for black and brown people. So part of understanding, part of allowing our dinner tables to reflect the multi-ethnicity and the diversity of a city is first understanding the, the context that we come from historically. But I think also it takes the hard work to move beyond the superficial remedies uh, and move to a heart level and start interrogating why our churches don't look that way. And typically what it looks like is that church doesn't have diverse leadership at the highest level. They're unwilling to buy to preferences. And there's a general unwillingness to see those who aren't like us as equals we tend to see them as people who need to be served. Uh, that's an idea we call paternalism. So yeah. when you add all those things up, and then you live in a city like Birmingham. I grew up in Birmingham, which is uh, what's affectionately referred to as Bombingham as one point yeah. at one time. Like it is, it, it's, it's almost impossible without some outside force, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, to break down those walls and very deep, intensive, heart-level work to interrogate these idols we have in our hearts to even begin to come to the table to understand one another. And this is the last thing I'll say. One of the reasons why I think we talk past each other in a way, one of various reasons, is because minorities in America, especially in the American South, are what you would call a high-context culture, whereas most white people, most of my white friends, are coming from a low-context background. A low context background is a background that, that in, encompasses a people who don't necessarily see themselves along a continuum of history, but they see themselves staunchly as family units and individuals and want to be seen as such and want to be judged as such. As opposed to, generally speaking, minority contexts see themselves as part of a long continuum and a long history. So the abuses of their ancestors or their people throughout history, they carry on with them. They have a high context understanding of the present moment today. So when a high context person is having a conversation with a low context person, they could be thinking they're saying the same thing and have two completely different meanings. Mm -hmm. And so the actual reality of getting to a point where we understand one another to have helpful conversations actually requires a lot of work. Yeah. And a lot of grace and patience with one another. And, mm -hmm. uh, and as you said, the gospel of Christ Jesus. What are, what are some models and some, some ways that you see that the church is getting this right, that we can duplicate and that we can replicate? 
and what kind of humility do you think it takes really on white brothers and sisters, especially those who have had preference and those who, like you say, are in a low context, what kind of grace and humility do we need to have in order to find equality with our minority brothers and sisters? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, <clears throat> I want to answer the, the, the latter question and I'll come back to the former. So you asked what type of humility it's going to take and does take a radical humility that many, especially Southern Christians, um, don't really have a concept for. I'm, I'm thinking of Philippians 2, verse 4, when Paul writes concerning Jesus, uh, the first three verses, he, there's a call to unity, and then he gives a reasoning for, for, for unity. And the way that unity is achieved is through humility, and he uses Jesus as that example. He says, um, who Christ, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant <clears throat> and being born in the likeness of men. Um, he humbled himself to the point of obedience, uh, obedient to death, even death on a cross. You get this, you get this really beautiful lesson of an infinite, uh, almighty, all-powerful, God, who John 1 says that not only was the word in the beginning with God, but the word was God, and by all things, by or through the word of God, all things were made. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 kind of re-up on that idea that Jesus is the medium of creation. He's the purpose of creation. He's the power of creation. And that that powerful, omnipotent force would take on, <clears throat> excuse me, the form of a servant, um, the form of creatureliness and submit to that for a greater purpose so that the children of God might be brought back in. And then Paul finishes that section by saying, therefore, there around verse eight, nine, he says, therefore, God has highly exalted him. So the reward for a deep uh, Christ-centered, Christ-like humility is exaltation. And so he highly exalted him and placed upon him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I, I think it's a radical humility that takes um, a level of dying to self and preferences and ideas and the need to be right um, that, that we don't often see in a culture, in an outrage culture, where anger acts like a drug-like stimulant that sends us deeper into rage. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a humility that's just required, uh, that calls us, that requires so much of us. And, and, and so examples of that, you know, I'm at a church now at Fellowship Memphis, um, in Memphis, Tennessee, we're about 15 years ago. The church was started to be in part multi-ethnic. And one of the reasons, <clears throat> one of the reasons it became multi-ethnic is because, um, the lead pastor, the man who planted the church, a, a white guy named John Bryson, uh, knew that they wanted to be multi-ethnic in the first three or four years of the church. He was the lead pastor, and they had an African-American communicator uh, by the name of Brian Loritz. And even though Brian was preaching uh, as much, if not a little bit more than JB, they still didn't see a shift. But when John basically, when Pastor Bryson said, okay, the only way this is going to happen is if I take a back seat. And Brian, you're going to be the one who's the lead pastor. And when they elevated him and made him the lead pastor of a church and the humility it took for Pastor JB to take something that was his baby of, uh, of sorts 
to take a step back and to exalt a minority in that position and say, hey, you lead us, the church exploded. And, and really, fellowship became um, the mother and the model for so many other multi-ethnic churches like um, Dr. Eric Mason, his church, uh, Epiphany Fellowship in Philadelphia, um, uh, Transformers Church in North Carolina with Duran Gray, um, Leon's Crump in Atlanta, Georgia, and so many other folks, Dahati Lewis at Blueprint in Atlanta. Um, and so fellowship served as a model and all the rest of those churches serve as models. But one of the things that they all have in common is minority leadership as lead pastors, minority leadership throughout, particularly black leadership in the South. Historically, there's been a black white divide. And so when that flows from the top and those leaders are humble, then the church is infected by that sort of humility. Then the city takes notice. And when the city takes notice, um, that's really when the door for gospel unity and, and gospel transformation is open because they said, if the church, if this church can be unified and diverse, then God must be working there. Um, and so that's how I would answer that question there. Well, amen, brother. And uh, I have, I have often, even here in Birmingham, as, as I've had other brothers and sisters that have really had this heart for multi-ethnic congregations, believe, just like you have said, uh, that, that for those of us who are in the seat of privilege or, like you say, low context, we've got to humble ourselves. And instead of trying to create our churches into multi-ethnic worship centers, really, we need to enter into yeah. uh, the places where there's already... Uh, we're, we're actually going in as a minority. I think there's a there's a healthy humility there to say, I'm not going to ask you into my world, but I want to enter into your world. That's right. And, That's right. and so even with that, I think about adoption. And so, I know so many of the folks that listen to our podcast have either adopted or praying about adoption or orphan care is very much uh, on their heart. And, and knowing that race and, and ethnicities and multi-ethnic families are so beautiful, but they also can be hard at times. And there's difficulties, especially for those in the majority culture and in places of privilege to bring in minority children, especially, like you said, African-American children into their home, because there's experiences they've never experienced that, unfortunately, today, these children are going to experience. What, what counsel and wisdom would you give to your white brothers and sisters who are entering into adoption and bringing in multi-ethnic families? Yeah, that's a great question. I just want, uh, first I want to affirm those families who have adopted transracially or are praying about adopting transracially. Uh, if God is leading you that way, praise God. You stand in line with a long history of Christians who have stood in the gap for children. And um, I pray that God would give you much grace, that he would provide funds, that he would provide wisdom. I think um, just in even thinking about the scriptures mandates, particularly in James, you are, you're being faithful and obedient, so praise God. Um, and so there's a, there's a great blessing there. There's a great opportunity there, but there's also several real dangers. And just a couple of those dangers are not or failing to realize that a child that you adopt transracially is going to grow up in a culture that doesn't match their ethnicity. And while as a small child, it may not seem like a big deal, when that child begins to wrestle with racial identity, 
then it's going to become a problem. And you may tell that child, you know, I don't see your color or I don't see you as X. Um, that child will be seen by the rest of the world uh, by the color of their skin. And so one of the ways or a couple ways that you can really serve a child that you transracially adopted is by finding immersive experiences that match that child's culture. So for example, let's say you've adopted a young African-American young man and uh, white families that adopt black children quickly realize that hair is a very uh, important and difficult subject to tackle. Um, and so rather than simply buzzing that young man's hair, uh, you should take him to a black barbershop. One of the rites of passages in the black community, and I remember doing this when my pops growing up, was going to the barbershop and being involved in the culture of the barbershop. Now, a lot of my white friends are afraid to do that, but they're more afraid of what they don't know than they actually are the situation itself. Um, if you have a young black girl, then go to a beauty shop or find a black woman who can do her hair. Uh, sports teams, gyms, um, maybe even schools, uh, recreation activities, uh, libraries, these places that are predominantly matching the culture of your child, making sure that they're there. Also, it, it involves cuisine. So culture is not just uh, religion or an attitude. It's also um, connecting to a line of history and uh, food. Cuisine is so important. And so let's say you transracially adopted from East Asia. Um, then we just uh, passed Chinese New Year. It would have been a wonderful opportunity to enter into that and for you to be part of teaching your child about their native culture. What I think that does is it, it lowers the consternation that comes when, when that transracially adopted child begins to bump up against not only how the world see them, sees them, but how they think about themselves. And so uh, part of that's gonna be trying to find a church that's gonna reflect those values. It's gonna be finding neighborhoods that reflect those values. And while those things may not, be, may not seem important now, there will come a moment when they're gonna, they're gonna be very important for that child. So um, we've got a lot of folks in our church who have chosen our church because uh, they can see, their children can see themselves represented on stage. Um, I get referred to all the time as uh, a, a Marvel superhero named Luke Cage. There's one young man in our church who, uh, <laughs> who loves to hear me preach, and it's not because I'm a great preacher, but it's because he looked at his mom one Sunday and said, hey, mom, that guy looks like me. And so that representation matters. And it may be subtle and unseen early, uh, but that's going to pay a lot of dividends down the road. Well, I, I think just like everything you've said and we've talked about, a lot of this just comes from humility as well. And I love your reference to Philippians 2, that we are called to have the same humility as Christ Jesus, who, although he had equality with God, didn't, didn't grasp that equality, but he emptied himself in the form of a servant and he served us. And uh, I, just, I just hope and pray that your words that you have spoken today will touch people's hearts, especially those of us in the, in the culture that has the privilege, that, uh, that has, like you said, a low context, that we would really empty ourselves and step into uh, even that hurt, that historical hurt. And like you said, our, our minority brothers and sisters and those who have had, uh, have had extensive hurt in the past, they see it as a continuum. And 
to step into that and to grieve with them and uh, to seek to mourn that history and not just dismiss it as something in the past. Amen. I completely and totally agree, brother. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I know that uh, if anyone has just loved what they've heard, truly, Jason Cook is a dynamic communicator of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, he, as you can tell, is a man who the Lord has blessed with immense wisdom. And so I would just encourage you to find him on the Gospel Coalition website, as well as to visit Fellowship Memphis on the web, or even if you're in Memphis, to visit and to be able to sit under the teaching of Dr. Jason Cook, or, or, or Jason Cook is such a privilege. And brother, it's a privilege to have you here today. Herbie, thank you for having me, bro. Well, thanks for listening to Defender Podcast. For more information or to connect with me, please visit HerbieNewell.com. To partner with Lifeline, visit LifelineChild.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at LifelineChild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.